Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. A recap then of the five orange pips. Holmes and Watson are visited by a Mr John Oppenshaw, um, who has a bit of an odd story to tell. He was pretty much adopted by his uncle Elias, despite the fact his dad was alive. Um, and uh, Elias was a, a soldier, in, a colonel, in fact, in the Confederate Army uh, and fought in the American Civil War, but has come back to Horsham in Sussex. Not particularly a nice man, Elias. He's, he's, he's a bit brusque and... Um, has some views, let's say, that I wouldn't agree with. Um, uh, but one day in 1869, sorry, 1883, he gets a letter which is postmarked Pondicherry in India, which is significant. It's written with the letters KKK on the outside. And of course, in 2020, we know what KKK means, but they didn't during the book. Inside those that, that envelope are five orange pips. After that letter, Elias he goes a bit mad, really. He sort of walks around, gets drunk a lot, starts seeing people when there aren't people there, walks around with a gun, um, clearly petrified. And on May, 2nd of May, 1883, he's found dead in a pool. Two years later, um, John's actual dad, Joseph, he also gets a letter, which isn't good news, obviously, but this one's postmarked Dundee. This Again, this is significant. Um, with the letters KKK, but this time there's instructions to leave the papers, whatever they are, on the sundial. <laughs> Joseph quite rightly gets a bit worried about this, and look, just do what the hell they want, but Joseph, um, Joseph is his own man and says, oh, and I'll be all right and everything. So he's killed too. Uh, he's found in a chalk pit. Um, the only clue that that uh, John Oppenshaw can give to Holmes is the fact that there's a page on his uncle's diary um, which describes orange pips have been sent to three men, two of which, dis- two of which disappeared, and the other one was visited. That's the word they used. Holmes says, okay, to John Hoppenshaw, go back home and I'll sort it out. And, and he, does some, he does a great deal of work, really. He finds out, he deduces the fact that Dundee and Pondicherry uh, are ports and therefore the men who are sending these things are on ships. So therefore, there's every chance that the ship is in London because they want to pick up the papers. So he has a good look for that. He also deduces that the KKK is, of course, the Ku Klux Klan, not the Ku Klux Klan, as uh, the great Hartman Art Biscuit banned from the world. Um rightly point out people can't say orangutan they say orangutan which is annoying and ku klux klan rather than klux klux klan but, but i'm digressing um the klux, obviously people know who the ku klux klan are now, are now but they didn't then as i said so john Oppenshaw doesn't make it home he's found dead in the thames the next morning holmes obviously berates himself for this and rechecks the sailing record and finds out that there's a ship called the lone star which is um uh 
in London and the Lone Star is obviously a reference to the Lone Star flag of Texas and thinks Southern State, maybe that's it. So he sends five orange pips of his own to the captain as a threat and then um, sends a wire to the, the police in Savannah claiming, you know, these are the people who have killed these men. But the Lone Star doesn't get there. It's found, um, it, it's sunk in a gale and the only trace of it is uh, the stern post which has LS written on it. So Holmes doesn't win. But the men are, um, as is quite common with the early stories, are greeted, as certainly as in the Boscan Valley mystery, um, a higher power will judge them. That's the five orange pips. I'm absolutely overjoyed to say that my guest for this podcast is Leslie Klinger. I've been really lucky on this podcast because the people I've had on uh, as guests are funny and they're informative and they're just a joy to talk to. There's no work involved in this, it's just talking to people about one of my favourite subjects and I can normally hold my own when it comes to my knowledge of Sherlock Holmes. Let's look at Leslie Klinger and what he's done. I'm very much the pupil of this podcast. Um, Leslie is considered to be one of the world's foremost authorities on Sherlock Holmes. If you really know the subject, you know all about the annotated Sherlock Holmes, which was published in 2004 and five. The first two volumes of that won the Edgar Award, which is the highest award um, of the Mystery Writers of America um, in 2005. The third volume, the novels, um, was also uh, nominated for an Edgar and a Quill Award. Um, he's also edited a ten-volume annotated edition of the Holmes canon known as the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library and co-edited a two-volume collection of classic essays on Holmes with uh, Laurie King uh, in 2012. In addition to this, this is just... <laughs> um, Leslie's edited an anthology of classic detective fiction called In the Shadow of Sherlock Holmes and four award-winning anthologies of new fiction inspired by the canon, again, along with Laurie King. He's also edited dozens of acclaimed annotated editions and anthologies in the mystery and horror fields. Leslie is also a long-term member of the Baker Street Regulars and has served as a series editor for the manuscript series of the Baker Street Regulars. He's currently the series editor for that, he teaches occasional courses on Holmes at UCLA Extension. I really must move there. His introduction and essays have appeared in numerous books, graphic novels, academic journals, newspapers, and even Playboy magazine. Leslie has been a technical advisor for the three major films featuring Sherlock Holmes, as well as a number of comic books, graphic novels, etc. We're going to come to this. In 2014, he was the plaintiff in a case that uh, ultimately appealed to the US Supreme Court, Klinger versus Conan Doyle Estate in which he successfully contended that, with limited exceptions, um, the character of Sherlock Holmes is no longer protected by copyright and could be used freely by its creators, such as other guests we've got coming up. Leslie and his wife have five children and live in Malibu with their dog and three cats. Uh, his day job is a practice in Westwood, specialising in tax, estate planning and business law. What an honour it is to have Leslie on this show. Welcome to From Adler to Amberley. We've just gone through the plot recap there and um, we've gone through your very, very lengthy bio. How you fit all this in plus five children is beyond me. But um, uh, so many questions to ask. Uh, first, I'm just going to talk about the, the annotated Sherlock Holmes to begin with. Anyone who knows anything about this show and my production of it will know that all the preparation I do comes from the annotated Sherlock Holmes because you go into such details, and particularly I go into detail on the five orange pips we're going to be discussing today. Um, how long did it take, the annotated Sherlock Holmes? Well, <clears throat> it was really in 
steps. Um, I started doing a set that is eventually known as the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library yeah. in 1997 or so. And I was pretty much doing one volume a year. That was moving along fine. Um, and then in 2002, uh, when Norton reached out to me about editing um, a set for them, my assumption was, hey, it was just going to be a matter of uh, sticking some pictures into the text that we'd already created for the reference library. That turned out not to be true. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought They so. wanted me to rewrite everything. So uh, I guess really it took about two, two and a half years, but starting with the work that I'd already done on yep. the reference library. That's one answer. Another answer is 37 years or something. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I started, uh, you know, when I first read Baron Gould back in uh, the 60s and um, began collecting and reading and things like that. So it, it was a big project. I mean, the well, normal annotated book takes me about two years. Um, this, was a, this was a much bigger project because it's three times the size. So... Uh, the, the the detail is absolutely incredible. I mean, what I really like about it, uh, is, is well, obviously apart from the research, is the fact that you try at some point as well to create the uh, a chronology of the stories where they all fall into place. And there's there's a problem with with five orange pips because um, there's already a reference to 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 Watson before a scandal in Bohemia or something similar to that. How difficult must that be? But we talk about on the show a lot about the fact that Conan Doyle, as much as we love him, could be a bit sloppy at times, and um, you know, often forgetting that you know Holmes hasn't met Watson then and things like that, and, right. and obviously the, the double reference to Moriarty and things. I, as far as I know, Conan Doyle did not um, create any sort of uh, what they call a Bible in television, where he sort of you know book, wrote down yeah. all the facts that he needed to remember. Yeah. Uh, he sort of did this on the fly. I suspect that he did once in a while flip back to see what he'd done in a previous story, but it was in a very haphazard way. Um, of course, I was not the first to try and do a chronology, and and frankly, I, I wasn't interested in trying to create my own. I took the lazy way out and basically looked at the consensus, sort of what did most people agree uh, yeah. with the date of a particular story. Um, and tried to indicate, I mean, at, I, th I think when we did this book, there were 15 chronologies. Now there yeah, are 17 or 18. Um, they all differ slightly. Um, some differ radically. radically. Um, so I wouldn't dare come up with a new consensus. And, but, and in fact, one of the things that I did was um, actually remove some of the chronological material that Baron Gould had so delighted in. Baron Gould, you know, had done his own chronology first before he did the annotated Sherlock Holmes and, um, and published it. And it's quite good. Um, but he so loved chronology that in the annotated, in the, the original Clarkson Potter edition, you know, he had many footnotes about things like the weather and the mail deliveries and things like that, which to him were important clues about chronology. I took all those out. Just because there's just far too much detail, and after a while, it becomes something else. Yes, <laughs> you lose the beauty of the whole thing. When uh, the reason I say this is is because um, um, John, our producer here, and I are are, are ripperologists, 
and um, therefore where, where everything is detailed about what happened in what road at what hour in 1888. Yes. Uh, and it goes the other way with that because then you start really, really fant- you know, sort of examining what, how many gas lamps there were on Dorset Street in November 1888 rather well, than I, who's Jack the Ripper. It, it, you I, I interested say- in the big stuff. I'm very interested in that, in that, in the science of it, um, and I attempted to do that when I did uh, the annotated Dracula. Um, I tried to pay a lot of attention to try and figure out the date and work out a chronology. There, there's it, nobody has spent a lot of time on that with regard to Dracula, but and the general assumption is that it's 1893, but that doesn't work. It just doesn't work when. No. You, um, look at the fact the book was published in 1897, and the last, the epilogue says this all took place seven years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, again, this is so nice for me because the things I'm going to point out to you, you already know because I got them from you. So there's, there's things, for example, in the Red Headed League, which I discussed with Trevor Bond, where, uh, where, where it's all over the place because he said four months ago, and four months ago would have been April or October or the other way around or something like that. Right. And, uh, which comes back to my my theory about um, Conan Doyle just saying, well, as long as the story works, I don't have to write a spine for this. That's um, right. That looks fine and, and, to me. You know, it, it was a different time. Today, mystery writers cannot get away with the stuff that he got away with. You know, people get angry letters saying, when you had the character drive down that street in Long Beach, you had them stop at a stop sign. There's no stop sign on that street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh... Uh, it's, you just kind of write stuff, you know. So Conan Doyle's attitude was, "I'm just making it up." Hey, yeah, yeah. If you've got a problem with that, then that's your problem, not mine. But here's a really, really good story which I've written. Um, you're also um, renowned for your, um, if you don't mind me bringing this up, your legal battles with the Conan Doyle estates. And I know you don't mind bringing it up because you mentioned it in your bio, so I'm allowed to say that. Yes, um, absolutely. That was a, a a huge victory for for everyone, not rather than just yourself, I think. It actually, it's interesting because it, it, it also has implications far beyond uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I, I was gratified to hear from a friend of mine that her daughter was in law school taking a copyright course and they're now teaching Klinger versus Conan Doyle Estate. Not that I'm the great legal theorist. I was just, you know, happy to have my name on it. Yes, I think, you know, the case basic, what was going on was um, trolling sort of the same sort of trolling that we see in the patent field, which was the estate said, you know, we have the legal resources and the will to stop people. And mostly it's going to be creators who either have such a large budget that what we're going to ask for is a small amount, um, or it's going to be, they have no budget, in which case they just won't do it at all. Um, So they were, um, and by the way, are, have not given up yet, um, still trying to extort, and that's a word used by uh, uh, Judge Posner, not me, uh, money from creators. Uh, so, And they did so successfully. They managed to get money from Warner Brothers. They got money from CBS TV for the elementary series, uh, PBS for uh, the U.S. broadcast of Sherlock, um, Basically on the theory that, hey, you can't do new stories about Sherlock Holmes without our permission. And what the case established is the, is the legal principle that if some of the material is in the public domain, well, 
the character elements. I want to be careful about this. This is it didn't say Sherlock yeah. Holmes free of copyright. It said the character elements that appeared in the public domain stories are in the public domain. Um, yeah. And only those things that are exclusively in the copyrighted stories um, are protected in the United States. And of course, outside the United States, the copyrights have lapsed in all stories. Yeah. Um, the, the estate has not given up. I mean, they went after the producers of the Mr. Holmes film. Uh, that was the one with... Um, uh, Bill Farrell. No, no. The one with Ian McKellen. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm thinking of and Miramax basically told them, drop dead. Um, and ultimately, there was a resolution of the case. My understanding is I, I was only indirectly involved that uh, Miramax paid them no money, but put some um, credit at the end of the DVDs that said, thanks to Arthur Conan Doyle for creating these characters. Uh, they tried it again. There's a film being shot right now. Um, it'll be out this summer called Enola Holmes. Um, which is based on some books by Nancy Springer, uh, starring Henry Campbell as Sherlock Holmes, that's being produced by Legendary Pictures. I know the estate told them they couldn't proceed without a license, and um, I believe that the response, I was involved directly in that, and uh, it, there was a vigorous response made to the estate saying, go away, you're wrong, we're not in any way using elements that appear only in the copyrighted stories. So if I was a filmmaker in California, what could I do and what couldn't I do as things stand? Well, the, the, the elements, I mean, it's very hard. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that the court's ruling has any real um, impact at all anymore. That is to say the negative aspects of the, of yeah. the ruling saying you can only use the elements that appear in the copy, in the in the public domain stories. Because what is there in the copyrighted stories that is a protected element? The fact that Sherlock Holmes retired? No, that's mentioned in other stories, although they yeah. try to say it. Um, the fact that Watson played rugby at Blackheath? Yeah. Okay. But there's another legal doctrine that I think overweighs uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, arguments, and that is the so-called fair use doctrine. So fair use basically says if you're using only a, t a portion of copyrighted material, this is the essence of what I thought the rule is, if you're only using a portion of copyrighted material, and effectively the use that you make won't have any commercial impact on the copyrighted material. For example, writing a whole story about Watson playing a game of rugby at Blackheath in which some exciting things happen, uh, how in the world would that have any impact on the sales of the Sussex Vampire? No. Uh, so, you know, I think that the estate, if it ever came down to an argument about protected elements, I think the estate is going to be very hard put to win um, an argument that somebody is using a protected element in a way that is not permitted under the copyright laws. So I think the bottom line is that if if you're intent on doing this and you get you get a uh, you get pushback, um, you can get a legal opinion. I've written them. You get a legal opinion that says you're not violating the copyright laws here. Yeah. Um, please go ahead. The practical. It, it's not a matter of going to court. 
it's really about getting a completion bond or getting a contract with a major uh, distributor or something like that. They're the ones who, who get nervous about this and um, are saying, just go get a license, uh, which is good for the estate, but that will soon be over. Uh, yeah. We don't have very long to wait now. So I could talk about all of this all day, but I suppose we should get on to the story <laughs> at some point. Um, I always ask, um, open with two questions. Um, one you've hinted at already. Uh, what, what led you to Sherlock Holmes and when? In 1968, um, I received a gift of uh, the Baron Gould annotated Sherlock Holmes. And before that, I was reading almost exclusively science fiction. I was not even really a mystery reader. Um, and my girlfriend, later uh, first wife, um, somehow thought that I would enjoy the book. She saw it in a bookstore window. She bought it for me. And I was hooked. And um, it wasn't just the stories. The stories I thought were charming and interesting and exciting, but I loved the footnotes. I loved the discovery of sort of the cult of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I very quickly subscribed to the Baker Street Journal and um, looked for other things to read about Sherlock Holmes, not just the stories themselves. Well, I, I, it's funny to say that I should tell you that um, John, John and I, um, on the last show we did, we did with uh, Luke Coons, who's a member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. And pretty much during the actual podcast recording, John joined the society there and then, just because Luke sold it to us so well, which I thought was a lovely. And I've, I've joined it since as well. And they're going to give us a bit of a, uh, a shout out as, as a podcast about Sherlock Holmes. Well, I, I didn't really get involved in organized Sherlockiana till, um, till I came to Los Angeles and in the early 1970s, after law school. And in the early 1970s, I joined an organization known as the Non-Canonical Calabash, which was a fairly large group of fans. Um, it was not particularly scholarly. Um, but it was nonetheless a chance to talk about Sherlock Holmes and watch Sherlock Holmes films. It was it was primarily focused on, okay, this week's special guest is the person who was the set designer for Sherlock Holmes and the Spider Woman. You know, that was sort of most of the meetings were like that. But um, it, it was a good time, and I began collecting Sherlock Holmes in a sort of very casual way. Um, I upped my game considerably in 1976. There was an ad in the Baker's Journal. In the Baker Street Journal, they used to they used to carry classified ads. 78 actually, uh, that said a fellow was selling his collection, and um, when I sent it, it was a lot of money. It was he wanted 3,500 dollars. That was an awful lot of money in 1976, and. Uh, I sent away for the list and I looked at it and I realized that what I had in my hundred book collection was a bunch of garbage. Um, and here was good stuff. And um, I talked it over with my wife, bought the collection, and that was the beginning of a very, very slippery slope. Yeah. <laughs> but for a long time, my uh, scholarly involvement, if you will, I would give the occasional talk about collecting Sherlockiana. And I, I started to give a lecture um, to a group of, uh, at, at the summer camp, which I was taking my kids to. They had, it was a parent-kid kind of camp. 
and they had guest lecturers from the campus. This was on uh, the UC Santa Barbara campus. And I volunteered to give a talk uh, called Introducing Sherlock Holmes. And so I would give an hour talk about that, in which I talk about his life and usually play a radio show or show some film clips or something like that. And I like doing that. But the idea of scholarship really didn't happen for me until um, pretty much the mid-90s, many, many years later, when I said to myself, you know, I've been writing articles about tax and state planning and things like that, because that's what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, why haven't I tried my hand at writing something about Sherlock Holmes? And it was actually, I don't know if you know um, um, Philip Weller um, or know of Philip Weller, yeah. um, who founded the Franco Midland Hardware Company. Um, I love that. I love this already. I this was a very scholarly-oriented like science society in England, um, and he offered degrees. So to get your uh, bachelor degree, you had to take a quiz. It was 100 questions. It was an open book question uh, test, and I was determined to get 100 points. On That's exactly test. what I was thinking as you said that. I want that. That's from the start. I, I, I think I ended up getting 98 points and arguing with him about two of the answers that I was right and he was wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and, and then the second part of the exam, which was supposed to be sort of the masters, I think, was that you were supposed to write five essays about anything, anything you wanted. And, so I did, and they were uh, sort of, they were mixed, they were pretty good, they weren't great, they were pretty good, um, and I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to send these off to various places and see if they want to publish them, and so I did, I and mean, one appeared in the Baker Street Journal, one appeared in the Sherlock Holmes Society Journal, one appeared in the Sydney Passengers Law, etc., so that was sort of the launch of my writing about Sherlock Holmes. I hadn't begun to think about annotating the canon. Um, I had thought about it, but I wasn't going to do it. Um, and then in the mid-90s, I said to myself, you know, maybe I don't want, have to wait till I'm retired to do this. I'm going to start doing this one story at a time. And I had done three or four stories and sent them to a few friends, um, including uh, uh, Chris Roden. Chris was the publisher of the... Um, Arthur Conan Doyle Society Journal at that point and other things and he read he read it and he said you know it's not bad needs a lot of work on this and that by the way you can't just take Baron Gold's footnotes and put them into your work and then just sort of add more footnotes you got to get permission you know <laughs> so which, which, which is a theme that. right so I thought about that he was of course absolutely right um, but I rewrote them, and fortunately, Steve Doyle and Mark Gagan, who were the proprietors of Wessex Press, um, having just taken it over, it was actually known as Gas and Gene Books, they just bought it from David Hammer, and they saw the material and liked it and said, let's do this, but instead of doing one story at a time, Les, we got to organize this, let's do all of the adventures, and I said, okay. And that came out in 1998, and that was the beginning. Just give me two years, and I'll do it all for you. Right. <laughs> well, I was doing them, as I said, I was doing them one a year, and we hadn't even finished yeah. the Reference Library series when the Norton books came out. 
but it got easier because I could sort of do the double duty with the work I was doing. So yeah, but well, I was going to say um, as uh, I, I mean, obviously I've got the annotated Sherlock Holmes books, so I don't have the novels. Uh, the reason I haven't got them is I'm saving them till I finish this entire series as a present to myself for getting okay. through this. So that's well, the uh, other, that's, and then and then one more present you should get for yourself, just because they're so much fun, is the tenth volume of the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library, uh, which is available at WessexPress.com. Um, is, the apocry- good. is the apocrypha, <laughs> uh, and the apocrypha are uh, fun. They're they're you know they're a little different, um, but uh, do you do you know what I'm talking about? The apocrypha. No. So these are stories that um, were written by Conan Doyle that may or may not, they're not part of the canon. I'm going to go get it. Hold on a second here. Here it is. Uh, this, this, is uh, this is the volume called The Apocrypha of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, what it consists of is the following material. The Field Bazaar, The Man with the Watches, The Lost Special. So The Field Bazaar is a little short, um, almost parody of Sherlock Holmes, written by Conan Doyle. The Man with the Watches and the Lost Special, those are stories that Conan Doyle wrote that don't mention Sherlock Holmes, but it's easy to see that it was Sherlock Holmes, yeah. who was the, the, uh, the detective. How Watson Learned the Trick, um, another parody that Doyle wrote of Sherlock Holmes. The Stoner Case, which is the his, his uh, attempt at a play version of the Speckled Band. I've seen that. Uh, I've definitely seen that. The play of the Crown Diamond um, uh, and, uh, and a plot that he wrote out called uh, The Tall Man. Um, and then finally, Angels of Darkness, which was a play that was never performed. It was a play based, it was s- sort of based on a study in Scarlet, or it became, actually, I think it's probably easier to say, it became a study in Scarlet. And... Um, these are fascinating. I mean, they're, they're apocrypha, uh, but they're worthy of study because they do shed some light on the canon itself. Excellent. Well, I, I, obviously, I, I could talk about this stuff all day, and I hope we will at some well, point. Well, so could I. I. But, but I really should move on to the story. Uh, <laughs> um, I said that I always open with two questions, and the second one is, did you like the Fire of Orange Pips? Well, No. I mean, I did really. That's interesting. It's a story that um, it, it, it's really a bothersome story. Yeah, uh, I've got problems with it, it, but I do like it. You know, we're we're left to wonder, as I said, whether sort of why is Holmes on the track of the person? I mean, he screws up. I think yeah. Yeah. Um, he doesn't take adequate protection of his client. Nope. Uh, and then he's going after the villains, and is he going after the villains in the end? As I said in my head note, uh, because he's seeking revenge, which is unusual for Holmes, or is he just trying to sort of make himself feel better that, okay, I screwed up, at least I'll catch the criminals. But no, I mean, I think it's a very unsatisfying case. Um, And, you know, he's slow to uh, make the appropriate deductions. Um, And frankly, it's not a very mysterious case anyway. So, no, it is not by any means one of my favorites. I would not put it on the top top 12 list. or Even though it's in the adventures, I mean, I, I just don't think it's 
um, as good as we see in other stories. So we, we we see something similar later on with the yellow face, where it's one of those. Sure. Stories, it's a it's a little bit different, where Holmes doesn't actually need to show up, and this still be a story. He doesn't solve anything. Right. He, obviously, he finds out who the murderer is, but that doesn't result in anything at all. And at um, least he, the yellow he face. The story. He's he's at least he's at least got the grace to uh, admit that he screwed up in the yellow yeah. face. Uh, yeah. Here he doesn't quite come out and say, you know, I really blew this. To yeah, the, exactly. I don't know if I it. Our client died. Yeah, yeah, that's not the great result he's looking for there. Although he does solve the murder, he does find out who the murderer is. So I think he probably would feel a little bit, uh, a, li- a little bit. But I think what is interesting about the way the the early stories are laid out is the fact that if you take them in order, Scandal and Bohemia, he loses. Case of identity, there's no actual crime. Um, the Red-Headed League, fair enough, he catches a bank robber and he mentions a murderer as well. But at the same time, he, he feels disappointed that he's caught, the, he's caught Clay. Um, and uh, what's the last one we did? Oh, um, uh, the Boscombe Valley Mystery, he lets the murderer go and he doesn't win this one. Right. So early on, it, it, and obviously they're written in, with no specific order in mind, he doesn't do very well in the first six stories. There's no sort of, here he is, I've got the murderer and I'm glad I've got him, which is very, very unusual for a writer. Well, and, and it sort of continues. I mean, it, when you look at the man with the twisted lip, yep. you know, it's not, first of all, it's, it's not really a crime. And second, you know, it sort of solves itself. Um, uh, the, you know, the others, it's really, you know, I think Conan Doyle got pretty lucky that he got picked up for a second installment after these stories. They're not exactly ripping mysteries. I mean, there are some gems. I love the Blue Carbuncle. That's my yeah, favorite story. Uh, the Speckled Band. Okay. A little bizarre, a little strange, some ridiculous things in it, but a great story. Engineer's Thumb. Okay. It's an interesting story. There's some unbelievable parts of it. Um, and Noble Bachelor, Barrel Cornet. Those are sort of... Eh, Copper Beaches, not bad. But this isn't, I mean, this, these aren't the best that he could do. And no, They're not Silver yeah. Blazers. But when you look at the competition, I think, you know, they're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. It's not as a, no one's standing here thinking he's a lousy writer. But no, no one's right. doing anything like that. You've just reminded me, actually, um, because we're doing all, uh, all the stories in order, um, there is going to be, I, I'm trying to keep out um, from an authorial point of view, which stories I like and which stories I don't, until I actually do the podcast. But I can just tell you now that I have to I have to do Noble Bachelor followed by the Barrel Coronet, and I'm I hope I get a great guest for those two. Poor poor John and I did the case of identity, and um, for for the last ten minutes we just we literally, we literally did live admin about who we're going to invite on next because it's not a great deal to say about a case of identity. <laughs> Well, I think there's some lovely things about that story. Though. I, it was actually the subject of my first um, ever article in the Baker Street Journal. And um, there were several aspects about it that I think it was my first, maybe it was my second, one of my very first anyway, if not the first. And I, I just uh, was fascinated by why Holmes goes off on Windebank sort of so hard. I mean, this guy didn't do, he didn't really commit a crime. Um, and, you know, how bad a person is he? And I speculated um, that 
Holmes knew more than he told us about Windebank. That in fact, uh, because I'm a, a wino, I, I was interested in this subject, that you may remember that Windebank, uh, it works for a large importer of claret. And uh, That's right, yeah. And this is a time, this is almost exactly the era when there was a tremendous amount, there had been a, there had been a terrible epidemic of phylloxera in the, uh, in the vineyards in France. And so um, real Bordeaux was uh, hard to find. So there was fraud going on. Basically, people would take raisins and make garbage wine and bottle it as claret and sell it to the English, because what do the English know? Uh, and uh, I, I suggested that Windebank had been involved in that, and that as Holmes looked into him, he realized that, and that's why he comes down so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's not just because of the way he treated his stepdaughter, it's because he's basically really a crook. Yeah, he doesn't like Mary, yeah, he's not bothered about Mary Sutherland whatsoever. Um, what, one of the things I do like about um, the Five Orange Pips is, again, in most of the podcasts we've done, we've mentioned the um, the tantalizing teasing of references to other stories sure oh uh, he, goes, he, he goes mad on this one this yes. one's the panadol chamber you know things like that and I, I think i think they're always interesting because i always get the impression with those that he's basically just thinking i'd like to write about that one day with that title but not yet and then he just puts them in almost as a reminder to himself i must write the one about the cormorant one day you know <laughs> and then do it that way well, it also it also gives greater weight, of course, to the character that yeah. this whole body of uh, of a career behind him. But but no, those are great, and of course, people have run with those um, and done all kinds of wonderful pastiche and study. I mean, the amount of scholarship on where the Isle of Uffa is, for example, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, and uh, uh, Sherlockians, of course, love minutia. As Christopher Morley said, endlessly delicious minutia. <laughs> uh, but and yes, so this story has a lot of it. Um, and it's interesting to me. I mean, uh, it's interesting to me that Conan Doyle went back to the American secret society thing. I was going to mention uh, this, yeah. Over and over. Um, that uh, I guess there just weren't any good British secret societies that he could write about. So... Instead, he writes about the Mormons, and he writes about the Scourers, and he writes about the KKK, and he kind of likes that idea. And and the reason he likes it is because the British public was fascinated by that. Yeah. Those barbarians over in America uh, have these sort of brutal things going on, uh, these terrible, evil secret societies. Uh, we, of course, don't have anything like that in England. Um, so... You know, this is to some extent sort of ripped from the headlines kind of writing. It's like, okay, the British public is really interested in the Mormons. I'll write about the Mormons. Uh, the KKK, great. I'll write about the KKK. There's, al there's also, I always thought, this might be just me being quite cynical about it, but it does make me think more readers abroad. And obviously that, that's up for the strands rather than, well, but you know, more, more international yeah. audience. If not for no, I don't think he was thinking of that at all because really? of course it took quite a while for him to get any money at all from the U S the stories were all being pirated here. So, um, I think, I think, I don't think he had any eye on that at all. Uh, I think he was just grateful to sell them to the strand and, and he thought these would be popular topics for the Brits. So, yeah, it's true. I mean, 
one of the problems, it's not really a problem, it's just the way things obviously have, have turned out. When um, Oppenshaw gets the letter and Holmes has to work out what the pips mean and, and you know, what does KKK mean? The, the modern audience would go straight away, oh, okay, it's that KKK. And there's no mystery to it. But of course, there was in 1891. It would have been a completely different for your average strand reader. Certainly. What that was. And it, sort of, it sort of lessens the story. It's not his fault that one of the big mysteries is everybody knows who it is. Um, but I think... Which is a you, shame in many ways. He was not writing for an American audience and he was writing yeah. for the contemporary audience who, who yeah. may have heard about the KKK and they'd certainly... You know, we're still very interested in the American Civil War, um, yeah. the terrible things that had happened there. And those Americans, as I said, those barbarians over there. Um, There's also a few things I don't understand. I don't quite understand why... Um, is it Joseph? No, jo sorry. Jo uh, John Oppenshaw gives away his son. Was it, was it, was it Joseph? Uh, he basically just gives away his son to it. You know, I, I, know, I know money is always a big thing because... So many of the stories are about money, but um, I thought that was quite an unusual trick. So basically, you, know, you expect if, if um, you know, there's going to be some sort of citizen cane being looked after by rich people, that sort of thing, but not usually while the parent is alive. Right. I struggle with that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think that it is it is a little problematical element in the story. It's quite it's not, the character isn't quite believable that he would do that. Um, but uh, who knows? There may be things that Holmes hadn't figured out, that uh, there were relationships that, that uh, he didn't know about, that, that Joseph was uh, uh, in deeper than he thought. Don't know. Yeah, well, another big part of that is the fact that he's not especially a nice man. <laughs> you know? No. Do you mind if oh, my evil brother not. takes over my son? Yeah, feel free. Yeah, right. Just leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it doesn't exactly shine here as a, as a model parent for <laughs> this sort of thing. Well, I mean, you know, I think we're, we're supposed to get the impression that he was not a good person. I mean, yeah. he clearly wasn't. I mean, even if he was in a secret society that wasn't a great bunch of guys, you know, they weren't doing benevolent things, he did steal. He, he basically betrayed. You know, if you're going to be a crook, at least be true to your fellow crooks. Um, yeah. He betrays them, and or at least that's what we're led to believe is the likely motive here. And, and it's, it's another Conan Doyle theme as well. He comes back to that in the resident patients as well, where, where yes. you know a, a man is found guilty of letting down his colleagues and therefore must suffer because of it. Right. Um, I'm also trying to work out what the papers mean, but I think I know he's, li he's left that deliberately open. Yes. Yeah, so what, what, could, what could the papers hold that he bends them in a minute's notice? Who knows? Except, except perhaps secret members, uh, members who were not publicly associated with the society. Because um, he chooses to burn them rather than just give them back. Yes. So maybe, I mean, I'll, write, maybe I'll write a short story about that. There you go. Obviously, I'm adhering to all copyright issues. Obviously, I would never do <laughs> anything. <laughs> well, this story is completely public domain, so hey. Uh, the, the, there was. I'm just looking at my own notes here to see there was something that I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting um, about. I'll, I'll find it. Um, you know, the problem is I wrote these things so long ago I can't remember anything. It's like people ask. I stopped taking quizzes. There was a time when I loved taking quizzes, and um, the last time I took a quiz, it was one where um, they had. If you got you, everybody stood. 
and you were asked a question, and if you got the question wrong, you had to sit down. So everybody would know if you got something correct or incorrect. Yeah. And I won. But as it came down to just me and, and one other fellow, I realized, you know, there's no upside in my doing these quizzes anymore. If I lose, people are going to say, why would I buy his book? <laughs> and if I win... He only got 98, I've every, heard. Every time I got a question right, they said, of course he knew the answer to that. He annotated the canon. Of course he knows. So, you know, I said, no more quizzes. So, and, but it's been now, it's at the point where I just say to people, you know, I don't remember. It's, it's in one of my notes. Um, and sort of leave it at that. Well, let, 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 before you do, while you do that, then let me return to one of the common themes of this uh, of, of this podcast, which I, I'm now starting to call Watson Watch. What is Watson doing in this story? I think it's one of the few stories where he literally does nothing at all. Yes, he just he listens. A single thing. He makes a drink for um, Oppenshaw when he turns up, so he doesn't get a cold. I think that's his sole the sole benefit of Watson in the story. And and he reads sorry, he, he reads the. Um, uh, he reads a sea story, doesn't he, as well? That's yes. about it. We do. We do mention Clark Russell. Absolutely. So it's, it's it's a very very low Watson count on this one. Although, oh, also of course he gets to tell um, Holmes about the death, or is it the other way around? Maybe I'm taking the BBC adaptation for that. For that, I just think it's an extraordinary story. The Five Orange Trips. I do really like it. Um, I know you mentioned it before, but I the first time I read it when Holmes gets his own orange off the sideboard, takes out five pips and put it in an envelope. I keep thinking, well, they're not going to be that scared by that. They're going to be, if anything, they're going to be confused when they're just greeted with an envelope with the words, um, you know, with just five orange pips and thinking, well, that, that's our thing. I'm fairly sure I'm safe. Is it John Calhoun? Is that, is that the uh, Captain Calcu- Calhoun of the Lone Star? Right. It doesn't really do a great deal. So a, a couple of points. These weren't what I was thinking of, but one of the things I loved about the story was that this is um, the first example of Watson's self-promotion. Um, that you know, Watson says, "Hey, uh, I should plug my other books," um, and uh, and so he does. He mentions uh, the sign of four specifically. Yeah. In here it's like so the readers will say, "Oh, I better go get that." There's another one. Yeah. Uh, but. It, now, I don't know whether the joke that I'm about to repeat, it's not a joke, it's a true, true story, uh, has any significance uh, in England. But in the United States, we have these little Halloween candies uh, that are um, marshmallow, uh, and they're in, the, they're in the form of baby chicks. Okay. Chickens. They're yeah. little tiny chickens. Uh, they're typically about uh, maybe three inches high, and they come in bizarre colors. They're usually in fluorescent day glow, green, or things like pink, um, and orange. So in America, these are known as peeps. Uh, so one year, um, a bunch of us received in the mail a big envelope and Inside it was a package of five of these orange. <laughs> it took a long time to figure out who did it. We we are pretty sure it's the now sadly departed John Farrell, BSI, uh, was the perpetrator of the joke. But uh, this was oh, I uh, like that. It's a wonderful sort of hoax, if you will. Yeah, we had received five orange peeps, and uh, we're all fearful 
that point. I Were really they like that. <laughs> I think I still have them somewhere. Excellent. Of course. This is this is a problem for collectors. Is uh, I still remember attending a Sherlock Holmes Society brunch where uh, there were pats of butter with parsley, uh, and, and someone had um, put an imprint of Sherlock Holmes on the pat of butter. And I thought, how am I going to put this in my collection? Yeah, exactly. If you've got a permanent freezer of about six inches exactly. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, that, that's that's always been the regret. That story of those never, you know, um, Holmes just working out who the murderer is by how much the parsley sunk in the butter. That, 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 I think that's one of the more intriguing. That and obviously the train cormorant is obviously the big one. But uh, yeah, I like that. And I, I do enjoy that. Um, the Five Orange Pips, to me, it's a great story where nothing happens. I think that's because when I write these notes, the notes about what I'm going to talk about on these stories, it's got lots going on, but the story isn't one of them. That's that's how I've always felt about it. I think it's, that's it's, 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 it's episodic, right? Uh, and and the good stuff is sort of mostly flashback. Any yeah yeah, and he liked that. We talked about it when we was in the Boscombe um, Valley Mystery with Luke. Um, we talked about the fact that it's an unusual story in as much as the, he basically because the Conan Doyle isn't keen on exposition um, usually he just goes right out and reads a newspaper report when he's talking about the trial of McCarthy and um, with this one he does like a flashback I mean I was famously of course studying Scarlet half the book Holmes isn't in it and the same at the Valley of Fear as well right um, but with it but this one he it, it it's completely self-contained in the here and now apart from obviously the KKK bits and the uh, the Openshaw story all the Oppenshaw stories. I think we ought to give Conan Doyle, though, a little credit for the theme, because this, this like other stories, is a theme. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Ross MacDonald, um, great American yeah. mystery writer from the 70s and 80s, who created the character known as Lou Archer. Um, and uh, it's a long series of novels. They're very highly regarded um, by uh, mystery aficionados. And Archer is almost always about the theme of the past coming back to haunt the present generation, um, the sins of the fathers being visited on the children. And Conan Doyle writes about that in a number of stories. And Loads, it's yeah. a powerful theme uh, and one that has created some great literature. This may not be one of them that I would call great literature, but nonetheless, it's another example of, of him visiting that theme, uh, and we see it in a few other stories, but um, that, you know, bad deeds may haunt our, our children or our grandchildren. Yeah, it, it's his, he's got a preoccupation with fate, in a way, as well, because the, 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 the poor Oppenshaw boy has got, has got no chance. The, the, this society is not going to give up just because he wasn't there. He's next. And I know they want the papers. And I know he says he's going to go back and leave a note to say, look, they're all burnt. And here's the single chart. And um, it's all done. But I don't think that would have been enough anyway. So he, he's basically fated to be haunted. He's going to be haunted forever on this. Yes. I think that's an interesting theme. I'm trying to think of sort of other stories like that. And the Norwood Builder is, is in part that. It's, yep. you know, yep. since the mother being visited on the son. Um I, often, I haven't, hadn't thought about this ahead of time, sort of have a list of uh, stories, but I think 
it's a theme that Conan Doyle very much um, was interested in. No doubt in part because he was so affected by his own family and uh, the, the conduct, the, the uh, life that his own father had left had led and, and his legacy. But um, so the story does have some depth. Yeah, it, as I say, I, I do enjoy it, but I've always had a bit of a problem with it. And it, again, it's it's th- part of it isn't due to Conan Doyle. It is the thing that the fact that the second it says the words KKK, straight away I knew what the problem was. I mean, I didn't know it was quite so mafioso as that when I when I first read it. You know, we will chase you down and we will kill you unless we get what you want. Um, but um, it does sort of give away the mystery. So maybe that's maybe if I'd read this in eighteen ninety one. I would have been more enthralled and enjoyed it more. I did enjoy it, but it's not quite as cutting as Silver Blaze. I keep talking Silver Blaze all the time. The really clever stories, Thorbridge, things like that, where, you know, there's a genuine O oh, at the end rather than a, all right, they killed him, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And again, it's just the fascination of yet again, it's another one he doesn't win. And yet you know, it's hard. We're so we're so jaded as uh, as readers and viewers, um, and I, I think you know we're we're always quick to point out that Conan Doyle doesn't have a lot of plot, that the plots are cliched, um, and so on. When we forget that you know he was inventing these cliches. Um, yes, if indeed, yeah. He was you know he was pioneering these kinds of stories. The whole idea of a series of stories about a character um, that we can actually remember um, is, is unique to Conan Doyle. I mean, he's, yeah. there were other series of stories, but not with memorable characters. I mean, you read, for example, uh, L.T. Meade's stories, uh, uh, stories from the Diary of a Doctor, um, and there's two series of them, and they're, they're quite good mysteries. But the protagonist is colorless. I mean, I couldn't tell you anything about that protagonist, the doctor. Um, and so he, he just, he created this brilliant character and he had the brilliant idea to have a sidekick that was worthy of attention. Um, unlike, yeah. unlike, uh, poor Dupin's sidekick. Dupin, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and Neil said to that in the first story, you know, he, as, as you say, the, He's adhering to a strict sort of set of rules, but they were his rules. You know, yes. he, he wrote he wrote the template on on, on and there's something I'm always quite keen when um, you know we look at the stories now in a slightly critical eye. The man was a genius of what he did, and you know you talk about personality. I, I love the fact in a study of Scarlet, and I mentioned this on the first podcast, is straight away you know that Holmes, although he's civil at the best of times, he's not always a nice man. And um, he's very, very dismissive of his clients once they leave, and he's got no interest in them whatsoever. And he's got sort of, if it's not charisma, it's sort of a reverse charisma. <laughs> you know, sort of, yes. you know, um, Although I if must he's not say charming, he will hurt. When we look at the BBC Sherlock, they really, um, they really underlined that characteristic of Holmes. Yeah. Uh, and I, there, I thought it came across as unpleasant. Unpleasant yeah. to the point where it was like, wow, it was really a chore to watch that and be around that guy. Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch was just prickly. Uh, but uh, so, no, I think you're right that that's not, um, that's not made up. Yeah. But it wasn't. It's not Poirot. Right. 
it wasn't to the point where you just want to slam the book shut and say, God, I just can't stand yeah. listening to this guy talk. Yeah, there's a great line in the in the BBC stories, um, the 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 Cumberbatch stories, where he says um, something like "You're boring," and then the the person looks, you know, very hurt by that, and he says, "Oh, oh don't worry, everybody is." And I think that makes him far more charming. As well. I do find you boring, but th- don't worry, no one is, no one's interesting in my world. Right. And um, and and the homes in our homes does exactly the same things, where he says, you know, this. Um, I think it's the, the Bruce Partington plans where he says the London criminals are dull fellow. You know, <laughs> genuinely, genuinely appalled at the lack of ingenuity uh, based on, uh, you know, he, he wants them to be more interesting. And he's in the Victorian society, you wouldn't say that, but he does. And I really like that. And, you know, so I'm talking about, you know, if we don't like one or half a Sherlock Holmes story, he is still making the rules up. And, he's, and he, he, he wrote that template. I right. want to celebrate oh. that rather than me just moaning. He is bohemian. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So his whole uh, bohemian soul, yes. He's uh, um, you take you know, like like him or don't, uh, but so. But we do. But we absolutely love him. We do. We do. Let's see, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to let you go because we said we do an hour. Um, um, but one thing I will say is, so you didn't particularly like the five orange pips. Would you <laughs> like to come back one day and do a story you like? Um. Sure. I mean, as I said, I mean, you're going to do the blue carbuncle soon, so I don't want to come back that soon. No, I've got, I've got my mate Paul wants to do that. He, he um, straight away said that's fine. I'll have to think about sort of my second favorite story. Uh, but sure, I'd be I'd be delighted to come back. Um, the uh, you know maybe when we get let's see, sort of looking at the list and thinking about what do I love? I don't know. Um, maybe the final problem, of course. I mean, who who doesn't love that story? Well, well, I think I can announce this now. I've actually got Bert Cools, who um, who was that wonderful. The, BBC, the Radio Four stories. I wonder if he could get both of you on. Oh, that I, would be interesting. Be it does it does deserve a bit of a stellar cast list that one. Yes, indeed. Well, Bert, was talking Bert about doing a, that Bert's with the Empty House because it's too because it's basically a, a two parter, isn't it? Yes. So Bert's a friend. Uh, that would be great. Uh, we that can would debate. be fantastic. John, make a note. <laughs> we're getting we're getting both, both on that's fantastic and one final question just this is just because i'm interested and i've never asked any, any other guests this before what's your least favorite oh boy um well not the five orange pips um i don't know i guess probably the mazarin stone oh thank you i feel like i've won i'm so happy you said that i mean i'm not alone by the mazarin stone yeah, I mean, there's many people who find that really sort of unpleasant uh, and... Uh, Repetitive. Uh, yeah. Now, I mean, I, there are many theories about why it's so, um, in, including the, my, you know, I prefer the theory, frankly, that it wasn't written by uh, Watson, um, that somebody else wrote it. Um, who knows? Maybe Conan Doyle wrote it. Who knows? Yeah. It could be, it could be like that. It's, it's like the witch's speech in um, in Macbeth, the Hecate yeah. speech, which which everybody knows probably wasn't Shakespeare, and makes no 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 ad- addition to the story whatsoever. Um, yeah, I'd like to think that Mazarin Stone was basically just they just found it in the street somewhere and just put his name on it. Exactly. I'd love to think that. Sorry, there's a bit of a spoiler there because I'm trying not to leap ahead with the stories, but I'm so pleased you said the Mazarin Stone. Um, <laughs> I suspect I, I suspect our producer John will have his own, and maybe he's shouting. I don't know. But, All right. Um, 
But uh, I've actually got someone to do the Mars Ransom Stone who really likes it. Okay, so good. That, well, that's going to be a two-hour special. <laughs> Chris Redman. Chris Redman did a book, um, and I've forgotten the name of it. Something like you know, like Sherlock Holmes or something like that, in which basically he found a an advocate for every single story um, to write about wow. why this particular story was their favorite story, and uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, let, let's interesting in inverted commas. Yes, interesting. Let's say that much. Leslie, yes. thank you so much for joining us today. It's You're a really, very welcome. It's a huge honor for me to, to, for you to have you on the show. Well, thank and, you, uh, and thank you for doing this. This is a, a great public service, and uh, uh, the more conversations about homes in the world, the better. Well, the, what is really nice, on Twitter, we're getting lots of people saying, I haven't read that. I've always meant to read Sherlock Holmes, and now they can come in. And a few people have said, what's next, just so I can read it in advance. And, of course, great. that's pretty easy because they're all in order. Well, are you uh, – if you – I don't know if you have a link to my website um, on your website, but it's lesliesklinger.com, and uh, it's got uh, links to see all of the Sherlock Holmes books that I've done, including the ones that I, the wonderful anthologies that I've done with Laurie King, um, which, in fact, were the reason for the lawsuit. <laughs> so yes, it's it. <laughs> enjoyable, but not quite as uh, as involved as you thought it was going to be. Right. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. Have a great day. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.